Chapter Four, Part One of A Wonder Book for Girls and Boys by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall from clivecatterall.com. The Three Golden Apples, Part One. The snowstorm lasted another day, but what became of it afterwards I cannot possibly imagine. At any rate, it entirely cleared away during the night, and when the sun arose the next morning it shone brightly down on as bleak a tract of hill-country here in Berkshire as could be seen anywhere in the world. The frost-work had so covered the window-panes that it was hardly possible to get a glimpse at the country outside. But while waiting for breakfast the small populace of Tanglewood had scratched peep-holes with their finger-nails, and saw with vast delight that unless it were one or two bare patches on a precipitous hillside, or the grey effect of the snow intermingled with the black pine forest, all nature was as white as a sheet. How exceedingly pleasant! And to make it all the better, it was cold enough to knit one's nose short off. If people have but life enough in them to bear it, there is nothing that so raises the spirits, that makes the blood ripple and dance so nimbly, like a brook down the slope of a hill as a bright, hard frost. No sooner was breakfast over than the whole party, well muffled in furs and woollens, floundered forth into the midst of the snow. Well, what a day of frosty sport was this! They slid downhill into the valley a hundred times, nobody knows how far, and to make it all the merrier, upsetting their sledges and tumbling head over heels quite as often as they came safely to the bottom and once Eustace Bright took Periwinkle, Sweet Fern, and Squash Blossom on the sledge with him, by way of ensuring a safe passage. And down they went full speed. But behold, halfway down the sledge hit against a hidden stump, and flung all four of its passengers into a heap. And on gathering themselves up there was no little Squash Blossom to be found. Why, what could have become of the child? And while they were wondering and staring about, up started Squash Blossom out of a snowbank with the reddest face you ever saw, and looking as if a scarlet flower had suddenly sprouted up in midwinter. There was a great laugh. When they had grown tired of sliding downhill, Eustace set the children to digging a cave in the biggest snowdrift that they could find. Unluckily, just as it was completed, and the party had squeezed themselves into the hollow, down came the roof upon their heads and buried every soul of them alive. The next moment up popped all their little heads out of the ruins, and the tall student's head in the midst of them, looking hoary and venerable with the snow-dust that had got amongst his brown curls. And then, to punish Cousin Eustace for advising them to dig such a tumble-down cavern, the children attacked him in a body, and so bepelted him with snowballs that he was fain to take to his heels. So he ran away, and went into the woods and thence to the margin of Shadow Brook, where he could hear the streamlet grumbling along under great overhanging banks of snow and ice, which would scarcely let it see the light of day. There were adamantine icicles glittering around all of its little cascades. Thence he strolled to the shore of the lake, and beheld a white, untrodden plain before him, stretching from his own feet to the foot of Monument Mountain. And, it being now almost sunset, Eustace thought he had never beheld anything so fresh and beautiful as the scene. He was glad that the children were not with him, 
for their lively spirits and tumble-about activity, would quite have chased away his higher and graver mood, so that he would merely have been merry, as he had already been the whole day long, and would not have known the loveliness of the winter sunset among the hills. When the sun was fairly down, our friend Eustace went home to eat his supper. After the meal was over, he betook himself to the study, with a purpose, I rather imagine, to write an ode, or two or three sonnets, or verses of some kind or other, in praise of the purple and golden clouds which he had seen around the setting sun. But before he had hammered out the very first rhyme, the door opened, and Primrose and Periwinkle made their appearance. "'Go away, children, I can't be troubled with you now,' cried the student, looking over his shoulder, with the pen between his fingers. "'What in the world do you want here? I thought you were all in bed.' "'Hear him, Periwinkle, trying to talk like a grown man,' said Primrose. "'And he seems to forget that I am now thirteen years old, and may sit up almost as late as I please. But, Cousin Eustace, you must put off your airs, and come with us to the drawing-room. The children have talked so much about your stories that my father wishes to hear one of them, in order to judge whether they are likely to do any mischief.' "'Poh, poh, Primrose!' exclaimed the student, rather vexed. I don't believe I can tell one of my stories in the presence of grown people. Besides, your father is a classical scholar, not that I am much afraid of his scholarship, neither, for I doubt not it is as rusty as an old case-knife by this time. But then he will be sure to quarrel with the admirable nonsense that I put into these stories out of my own head, and which makes the great charm of the matter for children like yourself. No man of fifty who has read the classical myths in his youth can possibly understand my merit as a reinventor and improver of them. "'All this may be very true,' said Primrose, "'but come you must. My father will not open his book, nor will Mamma open the piano, till you have given us some of your nonsense, as you very correctly call it. So be a good boy, and come along.' Whatever he might pretend, the student was rather glad than otherwise, on second thoughts, to catch at the opportunity of proving to Mr. Pringle what an excellent faculty he had in modernising the myths of ancient times. Until twenty years of age, a young man may, indeed, be rather bashful about showing his poetry and his prose. But for all that, he is pretty apt to think that these very productions would place him at the tip-top of literature, if once they could be known. Accordingly, without much more resistance, Eustace suffered Primrose and Periwinkle to drag him into the drawing-room. It was a large, handsome apartment, with a semicircular window at one end, in the recess of which stood a marble copy of Greenough's Angel and Child. On one side of the fireplace there were many shelves of books, gravely but richly bound. The white light of the astral lamp and the red glow of the bright coal-fire made the room brilliant and cheerful, and before the fire in a deep armchair sat Mr. Pringle, looking just fit to be seated in such a chair and in such a room. He was a tall and quite a handsome gentleman, with a bald brow, and was always so nicely dressed that even Eustace Bright never liked to enter his presence without at least pausing at the threshold to settle his shirt-collar. But now, as Primrose had hold of one of his hands, and Periwinkle of the other, he was forced to make his appearance with a rough-and-tumble sort of look as if he had been rolling all day in a snowbank, And so he had. Mr. Pringle turned towards the students, benignly enough, but in a way that made him feel how uncombed and unbrushed he was, 
and how uncombed and unbrushed likewise were his mind and thoughts. "'Eustace,' said Mr. Pringle, with a smile, "'I find that you are producing a great sensation among the little public of Tanglewood by the exercise of your gifts of the narrative. Primrose here, as the little folks choose to call her, and the rest of the children have been so loud in praise of your stories that Mrs. Pringle and myself are really curious to hear a specimen. It would be so much the more gratifying to myself, as the stories appear to be an attempt to render the fables of classical antiquity into the idiom of modern fancy and feeling. At least, so I judge from a few of the incidents which have come to me at second hand. "'You are not exactly the auditor I should have chosen, sir,' observed the student, "'for fancies of this nature.' "'Possibly not,' replied Mr. Pringle. "'I suspect, however, that a young author's most useful critic is precisely the one whom he would least be apt to choose. Pray oblige me, therefore.' "'Sympathy, methinks, should have some little share in the critic's qualifications,' murmured Eustace Bright. "'However, sir, if you will find patience, I will find stories. But be kind enough to remember that I am addressing myself to the imagination and sympathies of the children, not to your own. Accordingly, the student snatched hold of the first theme which presented itself. It was suggested by a plate of apples that he happened to spy on the mantelpiece. Did you ever hear of the golden apples that grew in the garden of the Hesperides? Ah! Those were such apples as would bring a great price by the bushel, if any of them could be found growing in the orchards of nowadays. But there is not, I suppose, a graft of that wonderful fruit on a single tree in the wide world. Not so much as a seed of those apples exists any longer. And even in the old, old, half-forgotten times, before the garden of the Hesperides was overrun with weeds, a great many people doubted whether there could be real trees that bore apples of solid gold upon their branches. All had heard of them, but nobody remembered to have seen any. Children, nevertheless, used to listen open-mouthed to stories of the golden apple-tree, and resolved to discover it when they should be big enough. Adventurous young men, who desired to do a braver thing than any of their fellows, set out in quest of this fruit. Many of them returned no more. None of them brought back the apples. No wonder that they found it impossible to gather them. It is said that there was a dragon beneath the tree with a hundred terrible heads, fifty of which were always on the watch, while the other fifty slept. In my opinion, it was hardly worth running so much risk for the sake of a solid gold apple. Had the apples been sweet, mellow, and juicy, indeed, that would be another matter. There might then have been some sense in trying to get at them, in spite of the hundred-headed dragon. But, as I have already told you, it was quite a common thing with young persons when tired of too much peace and rest, to go in search of the garden of the Hesperides. And once the adventure was undertaken by a hero who had enjoyed very little peace or rest since he came into the world. At the time of which I am going to speak, he was wandering through the pleasant land of Italy, with a mighty club in his hand, and a bow and quiver slung across his shoulders. He was wrapped in the skin of the biggest and fiercest lion that had ever been seen, and which he himself had killed and though on the whole he was kind and generous and noble, there was a good deal of the lion's fierceness in his heart. As he went on his way, he continually inquired whether that was the right road to the famous garden. But none of the country people knew anything about the matter, and many looked as if they would have laughed at the question, if the stranger had not carried so very big a club. 
So he journeyed on and on, still making the same inquiry, until at last he came to the brink of a river where some beautiful young women sat twining wreaths of flowers. "'Can you tell me, pretty maidens,' asked the stranger, "'whether this is the right way to the Garden of the Hesperides?' The young women had been having a fine time together, weaving the flowers into wreaths and crowning one another's heads, and there seemed to be a kind of magic in the touch of their fingers that made the flowers more fresh and dewy, and of brighter hues and sweeter fragrance while they played with them, than even when they had been growing on their native stems. But on hearing the stranger's question, they dropped all their flowers on the grass, and gazed at him with astonishment. "'The garden of the Hesperides,' cried one. "'We thought mortals had been weary of seeking it after so many disappointments. And pray, adventurous traveller, what do you want there?' "'A certain king, who was my cousin,' replied he, "'has ordered me to get him three of the golden apples.' "'Most of the young men who go in quest of these apples,' observed another of the damsels, "'desire to obtain them for themselves, or to present them to some fair maiden whom they love. "'Do you, then, love this king, your cousin, so very much?' "'Perhaps not,' replied the stranger, sighing. "'He has often been severe and cruel to me. "'But it is my destiny to obey him.' "'And do you know,' asked the damsel who had first spoken, "'that a terrible dragon with a hundred heads keeps watch under the golden apple-tree?' "'I know it well,' answered the stranger calmly. "'But from my cradle upwards it has been my business, and almost my pastime, to deal with serpents and dragons.' The young women looked at his massive club, and at the shaggy lion-skin which he wore, and likewise at his heroic limbs and figure and they whispered to each other that the stranger appeared to be one who might reasonably expect to perform deeds far beyond the might of other men. But then the dragon with a hundred heads! What mortal, even if he possessed a hundred lives, could hope to escape the fangs of such a monster? So kind-hearted were the maidens that they could not bear to see this brave and handsome traveller attempt what was so very dangerous, and devote himself, most probably, to become a meal for the dragon's hundred ravenous mouths. "'Go back!' they cried all. "'Go back to your own home. Your mother, beholding you safe and sound, will shed tears of joy. And what can she do more, should you ever win so great a victory? No matter for the golden apples. No matter for the king, your cruel cousin. We do not wish the dragon with a hundred heads to eat you up.' The stranger seemed to grow impatient at these remonstrances. He carelessly lifted his mighty club, and let it fall upon a rock that lay half buried in the earth nearby. With the force of that idle blow, the great rock was shattered all to pieces. It cost the stranger no more effort to achieve this feat of a giant strength than for one of the young maidens to touch her sister's rosy cheek with a flower. "'Do you not believe,' said he, looking at the damsels with a smile, "'that such a blow would have crushed one of the dragon's hundred heads?' Then he sat down on the grass, and told them the story of his life, or as much of it as he could remember from the day when he was first cradled in a warrior's brazen shield. While he lay there, two immense serpents came gliding over the floor, and opened their hideous jaws to devour him, and he, a baby of a few months old, had gripped one of the fierce snakes in each of his little fists, and strangled them to death. When he was but a stripling, he had killed a huge lion, almost as big as the one whose vast and shaggy hide he now wore upon his shoulders. The next thing he had done was to fight a battle with an ugly sort of monster called a hydra, 
which had no less than nine heads and exceedingly sharp teeth in every one. "'But the dragon of the Hesperides, you know,' observed one of the damsels, "'has a hundred heads.' "'Nevertheless,' replied the stranger, "'I would rather fight two such dragons than a single hydra. "'For as fast as I cut off a head, two others grew in its place. "'And besides, there was one of the heads that could not possibly be killed, "'but kept biting as fiercely as ever, long after it was cut off. "'So I was forced to bury it under a stone, "'where it is doubtless alive to this very day. "'But the hydra's body, with its eight other heads, "'will never do any further mischief.' The damsels, judging that the story was likely to last a good while, had been preparing a repast of bread and grapes, that the stranger might refresh himself in the intervals of his talk. They took pleasure in helping him to this simple food, and now and then one of them would put a sweet grape between her rosy lips, lest it should make him bashful to eat alone. The traveller proceeded to tell how he had chased a very swift stag for a twelvemonth together, without ever stopping to take breath, and had at last caught it by the antlers, and carried it home alive. And he had fought with a very odd race of people, half horses and half men, and had put them all to death from a sense of duty, in order that their ugly figures might never be seen any more. Besides all this, he took to himself a great credit for having cleaned out a stable. "'Do you call that a wonderful exploit?' asked one of the young maidens, with a smile. "'Any clown in the country has done as much.' "'Had it been an ordinary stable,' replied the stranger, I should not have mentioned it, but this was so gigantic a task that it would have taken me all my life to perform it, if I had not luckily thought of turning the channel of a river through the stable door. That did the business in a very short time. Seeing how earnestly his fair auditors listened, he next told them how he had shot some monstrous birds, and had caught a wild bull alive and let him go again, and had tamed a number of very wild horses, and had conquered Hippolyta, the warlike queen of the Amazons. He mentioned likewise that he had taken off Hippolyta's enchanted girdle, and had given it to the daughter of his cousin, the king. Oh, "'Was it the girdle of Venus?' inquired the prettiest of the damsels, which makes women beautiful. "'No,' answered the stranger. "'It had formerly been the sword-belt of Mars, and it can only make the wearer valiant and courageous.' "'An old sword-belt?' cried the damsel, tossing her head. "'Then I should not care about having it.' "'You are right,' said the stranger. Going on with his wonderful narrative, he informed the maidens that as strange an adventure as ever happened when he fought with Geryon, the six-legged man. This was a very odd and frightful sort of figure, as you may well believe. Any person looking at his tracks in the sand or snow would suppose that three sociable companions had been walking along together. On hearing his footsteps at a little distance, it was no more than reasonable to judge that several people might be coming but it was only the strange man Geryon clattering onward with his six legs. Six legs and one gigantic body. Certainly he must have been a very queer monster to look at, and my stars, what a waste of shoe-leather! When the stranger had finished the story of his adventures, he looked round at the attentive faces of the maidens. "'Perhaps you have heard of me before,' said he, modestly. "'My name is Hercules.' "'We had already guessed it,' replied the maidens for your wonderful deeds are known all over the world. We do not think it strange any longer that you should set out in quest of the golden apples of the Hesperides. Come, sisters, let us crown the hero with flowers. Then they flung beautiful wreaths over his stately head and mighty shoulders, so that the lion's skin was almost entirely covered with roses. Then they took possession of his ponderous club, 
and so entwined it about with the brightest, softest, and most fragrant blossoms, that not a finger's breadth of its oaken substance could be seen. It looked all like a huge bunch of flowers. Lastly, they joined hands and danced around him, chanting words which became poetry of their own accord, and grew into a choral song in honour of the illustrious Hercules. And Hercules was rejoiced, as any other hero would have been, to know that these fair young girls had heard of the valiant deeds which it had cost him so much toil and danger to achieve. But still he was not satisfied. He could not think that what he had already done was worthy of so much honour, while there remained any bold or difficult adventure to be undertaken. "'Dear maidens,' said he, when they paused to take breath, "'now that you know my name, will you not tell me how I am to reach the garden of the Hesperides?' "'Ah! must you go so soon?' they exclaimed. "'You that have performed so many wonders, and spent such a toilsome life, "'cannot you content yourself to repose a little while on the margin of this peaceful river?' "'Hercules shook his head. "'I must depart now,' said he. "'We will, then, give you the best directions we can,' replied the damsels. "'You must go to the seashore, and find out the old one, "'and compel him to inform you where the golden apples are to be found.' "'The old one?' repeated Hercules, laughing at this odd name. "'And pray, who may the old one be?' "'Why, the old man of the sea, to be sure,' answered one of the damsels. "'He has fifty daughters, whom some people call very beautiful. "'But we do not think it proper to be acquainted with them, "'because they have sea-green hair, and taper away like fishes. "'You must talk with this old man of the sea. "'He is a seafaring person, and knows all about the garden of the Hesperides, "'for it is situated in an island which he is often in the habit of visiting.' Hercules then asked whereabouts the old one was most likely to be met with. When the damsels had informed him, he thanked them for all their kindness, for the bread and grapes with which they had fed him, the lovely flowers with which they had crowned him, and the songs and dances wherewith they had done him honour, and he thanked them, most of all, for telling him the right way, and immediately set forth upon his journey. But before he was out of hearing, one of the maidens called after him, "'Keep fast hold of the old one when you catch him.' cried she, smiling and lifting her finger to make the caution more impressive. Do not be astonished at anything that may happen. Only hold him fast, and he will tell you what you wish to know. Hercules again thanked her, and pursued his way, while the maidens resumed their pleasant labour of making flower-wreaths. They talked about the hero long after he was gone. We will crown him with the loveliest of our garlands said they, when he returns hither with the three golden apples, after slaying the dragon with a hundred heads. Meanwhile Hercules travelled constantly onward, over hill and dale, and through solitary woods. Sometimes he swung his club aloft, and splintered a mighty oak with a downright blow. His mind was so full of the giants and monsters with whom it was the business of his life to fight, that perhaps he mistook the great tree for a giant or a monster and so eager was Hercules to achieve what he had undertaken, that he almost regretted to have spent so much time with the damsels, wasting idle breath upon the story of his adventures. But thus it always is with persons who are destined to perform great things. What they have already done seems less than nothing. What they have taken in hand to do seems worth toil, danger, and life itself. Persons who happened to be passing through the forest must have been affrighted to see him smite the trees with his great club, but with a single blow the trunk was riven as by the stroke of lightning, and the broad boughs came rustling and crashing down. Hastening forward, without ever pausing or looking behind, 
he by and by heard the sea roaring at a distance. At this sound he increased his speed, and soon came to a beach where the great surf-waves tumbled themselves upon the hard sand in a long line of snowy foam. At one end of the beach, however, there was a pleasant spot, where some green shrubbery clambered up a cliff, making its rocky face look soft and beautiful. A carpet of verdant grass, largely intermixed with sweet-smelling clover, covered the narrow space between the bottom of the cliff and the sea. And what should Hercules espy there but an old man, fast asleep? But was it really and truly an old man? Certainly at first sight it looked very like one. But on closer inspection it rather seemed to be some kind of creature that lived in the sea. For on his legs and arms there were scales, such as fishes have. He was web-footed and web-fingered, after the fashion of a duck, and his long beard, being of a greenish tinge, had more the appearance of a tuft of seaweed than of an ordinary beard. Have you never seen a stick of timber that has been long tossed about by the waves, and has got all overgrown with barnacles, and at last drifting ashore seems to have been thrown up from the very deepest bottom of the sea? Well, the old man would have put you in mind of just such a wave-tossed spar. But Hercules, the instant he set eyes on this strange figure, was convinced that it could be no other than the old one who was to direct him on his way. End of chapter 4, part 1